0: Can I please have your attention? Daniel Diggins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, and today is Election Day, and so we are not going to talk about politics at all. Because, really, what's the point? Um, Instead, we uh, are going to do... A uh, subject near and dear to my heart: dog genetics. That's right, dog genetics. With you know, maybe some cat and pig genetics will get thrown in here at some point. Um, Razib Khan, uh, who uh, we're sort of Twitter f- you know, friends, uh, is a geneticist, and um, he's the director of science at Incitome and uh he actually has a new newsletter with substack coming out in uh, like a week or so i think it's going to be called uh razib.substack.com but we'll put it in the show notes when we get that name exactly right and all the rest um uh razib is writes about politics a good bit but his real grind is on uh genetics and we probably have some agreement and disagreement about politics stuff but. um, we share a sort of real interest in this stuff. And, and there was this big new paper that came out from, uh, the journal science about dog genetics. And I thought this was the time to finally have them on and talk about dog genetics. So if you're looking for a break from all the politics, uh, this is the podcast for you. Um, we already recorded it. So I kind of know how it went. Um, if you're interested in genetics, this is probably interesting to you. If you're interested in, Human population genetics, this might be interesting to you. If you're interested in dogs, this might be interesting to you. Um, If you're not interested in any of that stuff, this might not be interesting to you. But um, I still think the intellectually curious will be intrigued by at least some of it. Um, I also want to give a quick plug to the What's Next event that we're doing next week. You can go to whatsnextevent.com to check out... uh, um, all the details and I think it's going to be really interesting and it's going to be uh, pretty important. And uh, we are still, it's like planning a friggin' wedding, trying to get all the different panels lined up schedule wise, but we we've made great progress on that and more and newer and more interesting people are being added every single day. So go to what's next event.com to sign up, to learn more, all the rest. And so with that, uh, let's get to the conversation. Razeeb, first of all, welcome to The Remnant. It's nice to finally have you on. Great to be here. So uh, I read your piece in Quillette. I also read some of the stuff in the New York Times and some other places on all of this. But why don't you, just for the average listener who, I mean, look, the average listener who's not interested in dogs or in, in genomics or any of these, or, or DNA, Probably isn't going to listen to this anyway. So, but they may not, the ones who are interested to some extent or another may not be up to speed on the current state of canine research. So, mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. don't you sort of uh, give a big picture look at what's, what we know in light of this new study, but also just what we know in general? And then I'll start pulling on various threads as we move forward.
1: Yeah. Um, so the thing with canine research, as you say, um, and canine genetics is, is actually kind of a big deal, partly because, one, they're our primary companion animal, as we would say, you know, man's best friend. Um, and secondarily, they're actually genetically quite interesting. Um, if you look at dog breeds, you can see some very small ones and very large ones, some that live a long time, some that don't live a long time some that have particular diseases that are inherited, like heart disease. So it's actually kind of a big deal in general in genetics to study dogs as a, quote, model for humans. So I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about the fact that a lot of genetic research is done as mice, which has some problems because, guess what, humans aren't that much like mice. Now, we're not that much like dogs, but um, if you look at the size of a dog and the size of a human, they're much more comparable. And also, um, this is... It's a real thing that dogs have lived with us for a long time, which means they're selected in certain ways that might be more like humans than mice because most people don't have pet mice, for example. Now now I'm going to step into the evolution side, evolution and genetic side. Um, a question that's you know occurred for a long time uh, to researchers is, okay, they're our best friend. They exist with humans in most of the world. So how long has this been happening and how did it happen? And um, what is the relationship of dogs to, say, wolves? Like, those are, say, like, three big questions that are out there. And this paper in Science um, that, you know, we'll we'll be talking about, and my Quillette piece is about, uh, kind of answers a little bit like, okay, like, what is the relationship to wolves? And in a very, very broad way, like, when did this happen? Um, It doesn't get so much into the details of like what exactly happened. That's kind of for future research, I think, although there have been other papers and other work in that area. But um, the big next step that I would want your listeners to know is we're getting a lot of ancient DNA from humans and now it's moving to other organisms like dogs. So they're actually getting DNA from 10,000 years ago and they're sequencing it. And so it's not as if like they're taking the DNA and they're doing all sorts of complicated math and figuring things out. They're actually taking the DNA from 10,000 years ago, you know, Cave dogs, as people might say.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the, as I understand, it, you correct me wrong. That you know the the basic story. Um, which there's been controversy in the past about whether it happened once or more than once. But basically, the basic story is some wolf. You know, boiling it down to a children's book, some wolves hung around our campsites, 15, 10 000 to fifteen thousand years ago and uh kind of hung around and there slowly became this sort of symbiotic relationship where we threw them the bones from our mastodon meals and they uh the ones that were inclined to be friendly to us moved closer and closer eventually we figured out that they could join us on hunts and were pretty useful um and then we started they sort of selected us and we sort of selected them and then breeding evolved out of that in a way that um, reinforced these this natural sort of symbiotic relationship to the point where basically you had speciation, where there was this split off from wolves to this new thing called dogs. And, um, um, and the more, and it turns out, I mean, I talked about this for a bit with Cass Sunstein um, on an episode where the more you start, uh, Breeding for certain characteristics in dogs, the more um domesticated they actually become. They actually sort of, if you do it with foxes, they kind of become, if you breed them to look like puppies, they actually end up acting much more like dogs and that kind of thing. So it turns out that dog genetics are. I mean, I, I, this is a question I have for you. Are dog genetics more malleable? I mean, could you have done the same thing with an offshoot of an elephant or an uh, ox? Or is there something specific about wolves? And the ur er dogs that lends themselves to this kind of genetic manipulation?
1: Yeah, uh, so I'll answer that, but let me um, back up a little, just just some clarification because sure. in general, you're, 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 on, you're spot on, although um, this field changes really fast. So the dates of when dogs diverge from wolves, I think this is a very important question, and there's still some dispute. I' gonna, we're going to push it back a little from 10 to 15,000 to say 15,000 to 30,000 years now. Um, okay. We have to we have to say that partly because it looks like Native, the ancestors of Native Americans separated from other Siberians um, at the latest fifteen thousand years ago, and they brought dogs. They brought domestic mm-hmm. dogs, so we can peg some of the dates. Um, really, like there are people who will argue that the domestication of the dog goes back almost as early as anatomically modern humans in Eurasia, so about forty thousand years ago. Um, that's that's a that's a really early peg. Most people, I think, would put it a little later, twenty to thirty thousand years ago. Uh, so, your general um, outline is correct. It looks like there was some sort of symbiotic coevolution going on with a particular wolf lineage uh, that modern humans encountered twenty to thirty thousand years ago. And so, the, the two lineages separate, and so the, so the divergence is pretty deep. Um, and you have to think about it in dog years, dog generations. Say like you know three or four years per generation. And then with humans, it'd be like 28, and so when you're saying 20 to 30 thousand years, that's a really really long time in dog generations, right? And so mm-hmm. I mean that's that's one way you you would you would scale it. Um, and then the, you have this separate lineage, as you say, like you know speciation, which is an, an arguable debate with geneticists because how do you define that? Because they can still cross with wolves. But the dingo is an example of a domestic dog that went feral, and they did not evolve back into wolves. So that suggests some, some very, very deep genetic changes that occurred to dogs. And um, you alluded right, to like, the fox... Just,
0: just, just to understand the, that point, because I think it's a really interesting one. If I take most breeds of pigs and throw them back in the wild, they'll turn back into boars pretty quickly, right? I mean, not like overnight. Yeah, yeah, But but like within generations, uh, two or three, something like that, they they become bores again, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a difference. And this is actually kind of, um, I don't know if this was in the science paper, but people pointed this out. Um, There's a lot of domestic organisms, pigs are the classic case, where there's actually a lot of um, genetic mixing between the wild lineages and the domestic lineages. So different types of pigs across the world, they have evidence of like local boar admixture, right? Mm -hmm. So, because they're getting jiggy with it when you're not looking, you know? Um, With dogs, what they're finding here, and there's some skepticism about this result, but I think it makes sense in terms of population sizes. Um, There's a lot of gene flow from dog to wolf, but almost none that they could detect from wolf to dog, Um, which is um, kind of a surprising Now, When I worked at 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 the dog genetics company, I can tell you there are legit wolf dogs out there um because we would test for that and there are people for some reason they always lived in montana um that had i think it's because of some regulations um uh, funny story a woman wanted to know if her wolf dog was really a wolf dog because a lot of them are passed off as fake. so she sent us the picture and it looked like a dire wolf so i was like why are you even asking us that (laughs) and it wasn't a wolf dog it was a three-fourths wolf dog (laughs) so um, (laughs) i was like yeah you're a wolf." Dog is very wolfy. But in any case, um, so the the, the interbreeding can happen, but it didn't happen that much. I think part of it is there's just a lot of dogs. And so um, for wolves to have genetic impact on dogs, there has to be more like balance in terms of the numbers, and that didn't exist, right? So, yeah, um, compared to pigs and a lot of other domestic animals, uh, it seems like there's been a fair amount of separation. Um, Is this due to the genetic particularities of dogs? Uh, People have hypothesized this in the past because a lot of the differences that you see. Are due to what we call copy numbers in the genome. So, um, you know, a typical gene, there's one copy of it. But there's like various um, genetic phenomena where it's like you can duplicate it. And sometimes that makes organisms bigger, Um, it changes the enzyme production and stuff like that. I don't think that that has actually panned out, although someone can correct me, um, you know, after they listen to the podcast. Um, I I think that the issue with dogs and their evolution is in some weird ways, they're a lot like humans. Uh, so they're social, um, they're eusocial mammals is what we would call them. Um, so they have a pack and, you know, they have this social intelligence and they operate in a coordinated manner. Um, and humans are, I mean, we don't have packs, but you know, we're pretty tribal, right? And so it turned out that there was this large, large Eurasian megafauna. Um, you know, my, my fly friends will call them megafauna or megafauna and they're both pack hunters, uh, and so they're, they're both pretty intelligent. And so they started cooperating together. And I think we know this, actually, that this happens. To, a friend of mine um, pointed out that on the Andaman Island is in the Indian Ocean, there were no dogs until like 100 years ago when the British brought them. And once there were dogs, the local hunter-gatherers immediately started cooperating with the dogs to hunt, like almost immediately. So that shows you that there's something in humans where we are pre-adapted to hunt with dogs just like dogs are pre-adapted to hunt with us. And so um, I think it shows that, you know, we're not best friends just through happenstance, like our cooperation and our coexistence with a large mammal that's omnivorous and social.
0: Well, I mean, that that turns out that that's just kind of faded. So, I mean, so getting back to my question a little bit, um, you know, there's that book Invaders that came out a few years ago, which... Yeah. Um, it seemed like... You know, there was a lot of specula- speculation yeah. in it, but I, I like the speculation, so I'm sympathetic to it. But yeah. you know, part of the argument in that book was that um, the that dogs basically helped us wipe out our Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal enemies, Neanderthal. right? And yeah. the argument in there, which I thought was fascinating, is that the way we, can, because we're the only, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but we're the only primate who has a big chunk of white on our in our eyes, right, that goes around the iris or whatever you call it, the pupil, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It allows us to communicate by looking. We can point at something by where we direct our eyes, but primates that have all basically black eyes, like a gorilla, can't do that. And the, the speculation was, was that dogs also have this ability and that, you know, dogs can read human eyes in ways that wolves just yes. can't. Um, a, do you believe that? And B, again, uh, you know, there's all that stuff in in Jared Diamond's books about how, like, the specifics of various animals led to different differences in development in different regions around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how come we spent a lot of time with horses? I assume horse generations are kind of short. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent a lot of time with cats. Um, you know, it, again, is there something I'm missing? Yeah. Is it specific about dog DNA or genetics? Or yeah. is it just that we're just so determined to work with them that... that, that because horses are herd animals, too, right? I mean, anyway. Yeah. Wh- yeah. So, um, <laughs> um, so I was also a canine geneticist for,
1: or a feline geneticist for a while. Uh. Uh. So I, I can't, like, I'm not going to speak negatively of
0: cats, or they're going to come after me, the cat people. Um, oh, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I've, I've learned my lesson about that as well. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah, and I am, I, you know, we, we are, we a cat family more, but, um, you know, so I try to stay neutral here. Um, in terms of what's specific, I do think, um, the specific aspect. Um, again, is the social element of dogs. So ho- horses, they have eyes on the side of their heads, right? So they're, they're herbivores, obviously. Right. And we're not herbivores. And yeah. we are not hunted by other animals too often. So that I think that situates us um, just psychologically uh, in terms of what our adaptations are, what our concerns are, to be totally different. So imagine, so you are exactly correct. Um, so like going back to invaders, um, mm-hmm. I think people don't believe that story cause they don't think that the ad- coexistence with dogs is that old. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, I don't think the chance of likelihood is the 1% for that story. I think it's more like 10%. Mm-hmm. So that's not a trivial, as Nate Silver would tell you, right. that's not nothing, <laughs> you know, 10% is a real probability. Um, I'm, I'm probably actually, um, I suspect that it's an older coexistence than most of the genesis would say right now. Mm-hmm. I think the, the data will come in, but we'll see. That's for the future. Um. So I think, but I think that she puts together Pat Shipman puts together a lot of elements that show why humans and dogs, uh, they're just a good fit. And so with horses, imagine a horse trying to understand the psychology of a human. Um, we are we are omnivorous. We hunt. Uh, we have eyes on the front of our faces, whereas a horse, they're not like that at all. And also the horse breeding system, as you might know, is pretty weird. Mm-hmm. Um, one male, one stallion, you know, controls the herd. Whereas dogs are more monogamous and humans are also... I mean, there's arguments whether humans are monogamous and polygamous. Um, it's a spectrum. I think we're definitely on the... Compared to, say, a gorilla or a horse, mm-hmm. we're definitely on the monogamous side because the the sex difference in size between human males and human females is not nearly as large as a gorilla, okay? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good indicator. Like, the more polygamous a species is, the bigger and more jacked the dudes are compared to <laughs> the female of the species, right? Um, you know, big canines, all that stuff with stallions. When you do stallion pedigrees, it's like multiple generations of like one male because the reproductive, like you know, gain to that one super male is so huge. So mm-hmm. you know, like in genetics, we call it the Genghis Khan of stallions. There are stallions where it's like every every horse alive of like you know multiple breeds is descended from this one male stallion, right? And so I think horses are very different. We also eat them. I mean, we eat dogs too. They're you know, I mean. That's, that's a thing, but it's not as common of a thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it just has to do with the fact that uh, dogs are a social, uh, mostly carnivorous uh, organism um, whose social structure is not, I mean, it's quite different than humans, but it's not like a stallion with, you know, their herd of mares, right? That's just like beyond the ken of comprehensible. And also like timescale, I want to emphasize um, there is no evidence for domestication of coexistence in this way with any animal, um, at least in a consistent way, during the Pleistocene, which is uh, Pleistocene ended eleven thousand five hundred years ago, kind of is the end of the last ice age. Uh, cats are after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all all of the food animals, or uh, you know, the animals for you know transportation, like horses, llamas, are after that. So everything else is relatively recent. And, um, you know, horses, you were talking about pigs. Um, it turns out, um, that the last wild horses, I think they're like the Przalski's horse. Like I'm not I'm mispronouncing it, but yeah, yeah. they're in Mongolia, right? Yeah. So for a long time, those horses were thought to be the descendants of the wild horses that are the ancestors of all the domestic horses. Well, now with modern DNA and with ancient DNA, it turns out, it looks like those horses are actually feral. Mm -hmm. So, um, they've been feral for a long time. They're descended from the bow tie horses, which is an independent domestication of horses that occurred in Western Mongolia by a people that no longer exist, distantly related to the native Americans, et cetera, et cetera. That's an interesting separate story. But, um, the point there is horses, unlike dogs can go back to being feral in a way where they just look totally wild. Mm -hmm. Whereas the dingo, I mean, they might be eating your babies, but they're not a wolf.
0: Right. Right. So, um, you know, and I think one of the advantages that that you know canines have, the dogs have, against a lot of these other animals, is that they really understand the importance of staying hydrated. And that's why I want to talk to you about hydration. So, Razib, I don't know if you knew this, but seventy-five percent of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated. We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. And I should point out, you know. In the modern industrial 21st century economy, this is a real problem. It was probably even a greater problem um, on the savannas and in the plains of our uh, prehistoric past, because if you were dehydrated, then uh, you'd get eaten. But uh, falling asleep at work, falling down on the job, not, not performing at your peak is bad enough, and um, that's why hydrant is so useful. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs sodium, potassium, magnesium, and my dear friend, zinc, which help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient, hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a pack for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, promo code Dingo for 25% off your first order. DrinkHydrant.com promo code dingo. All right, so back on this dingo thing, because you keep you keep mentioning dingos, and um as longtime listeners know, I'm somewhat invested in the, the tale of the yes. dingo. Um it's so we we were talking about how um when dogs go feral, they don't become wolves, right? They become essentially dingoes. And I, I understand that the dingo line and the singing, the, the, what was it, the singing dogs of New Zealand? New Guinea singing dog. New Guinea, yeah. That that's a separate, spe- it's a separate breed or yeah. species or lineage. thing. Lineage, the, let's the call lineage, let's talk it lineage. Right, I get that. But it is an amazing thing that if you can take, if you took some bulldogs, some bass and hounds, some Great Danes, some German shepherds, and you unloaded them on some island in the middle of the Pacific that had adequate food supply and all the rest, in three, four, five generations, they all basically look like dingoes or they look like Tibetan street dogs or Costa Rican street dogs, whatever. There is that phenotype, or you correct me if I'm using the wrong word, wrong, of this ratio of snout to ears to nose that looks like a mutt. And that's what... That's what chihuahuas, all these dogs sort of want to be on the inside and they revert yeah. back to it pretty quickly. And that's not a wolf, right? No. So no. Um, what does, you know, does that dog that they revert to look like the, this missing wolf that we don't know mm-hmm. where it was? I mean, like, why does it revert yeah. to that type? What does it yeah. say about the stability of dog genetics that, that, that this, is, this is the, the, the dog within?
1: Yeah. Well, so um, let's, uh, should I uh, just like talk real quickly about the five lineages in the yeah, science paper? Yeah, why don't you do that? Yeah. All right. So let, let, let's, let's let's situate this for the listeners. So the, the science paper, for those who want to like look it up, is Origins and Genetic Legacy of Prehistoric uh, Dogs. The first author is Anders Bergstrom um, and uh, last author is Pontus Goglin, a group out of England. So it's a really good paper um, with really good visualizations if you want to see it. I think it's actually free. Uh, I just loaded it up right now. I didn't need to log in or anything um so they what they found the primary result is that it turns out when you look at all the modern dogs and you look at their ancient DNA which goes back 10,000 years they sampled 27 ancient dogs uh, is that they could find five broad genetic clusters or lineages this is not exhaustive uh, so they might find more later but this is the primary like ancestral constituents of all the domestic dogs in the world like you know 90 95% of the ancestry is going to be these five okay and these five descend from a common wolf ancestor that lived between 15 and say 30,000 years ago, somewhere around the last glacial maximum. In terms of wolves to dogs, um, sometimes people say that dogs are actually a type of wolf. I myself do not like that description because um, it turns out that dogs and wolves are what we call reciprocally monophyletic. And that all that means is that they're, two, they're sister lineages. They're descending from some common ancestor and so dogs descend from, you know, a wolf-like, a wolf-like dog, or wolf like lineage that's a sister to the ancestors of modern wolves. They're not descended from modern wolves in any way, right? And um, so what they found was that these are geographically dispersed lineages across the world, which makes sense. That's a human population's partition. And so the five lineages are the New Guinea singing dog lineage, which Jonah just talked about, and that's found in Southeast Asia Um, And so these are the ancient Southeast Asian dogs that were brought by modern humans, probably. Um, Some of this ancestry is also found in China. Um, So all across, say, the Pacific Rim, you have some of this New Guinea Guinea singing dog lineage, which is highly represented in a particular breed in New Guinea. Um, There's another lineage called uh, the uh, Levant, the Neolithic Levant. And so the Levant is Syria, Lebanon, Israel. Their samples are from Israel. And it's Neolithic, which is the New Stone Age. So that's the rise of agriculture. They're ancient samples from say, like 8,000, 7,000 years ago in Israel, uh, this is that lineage. Now, that lineage today actually does not exist in the Middle East. Um, it's actually been uh, dis- displaced by European and another uh, Iranian lineage, and it's mostly found in Africa. Um, the Basenji actually has a really high percentage of this. So that's the second lineage. Uh, third lineage, let's go to Europe. Um, there are There is a lineage of dogs from Karelia, which is by Finland, Finland-Russia border. Um, these are basically think of them as ice age European dogs. Um, that was one of the primary lineages. Now this lineage extended probably throughout Europe and into Northern Eurasia. Um, and so that is a major ancestor of, uh, of, of dogs right now. Um, then there's like a new world lineage, uh, Native American dogs. Um, so when the conquistadors arrived, there were dogs here. Um, the Aztecs had dogs. And so that's the New World lineage. Alaskan Huskies are, 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 are still have a lot of that. It's mostly been replaced in the rest of the New World. And finally, there's a dog from Siberia, which is related to the New World dogs. They called it the Baikal dog, and so that's a, kind of the other extreme from the Karelian dogs. If you go across like Eurasia from west to east, um, these are this broad northern Eurasian dogs. And these are two separate lineages. So modern dog dog breeds can be thought of as combinations of these five. That's how you think about it. These are the ingredients of the recipe. Um, most of the popular, most of the ancestry in the world now, though, is from a European dog breed that seen or dog lineage that seems to have flourished about five thousand years ago, and that's a mix of the Corellian and the Neolithic Levant. So, kind of a mix of Middle Eastern and Northern European dog, and um, the dogs that you see all around, mostly they're from the- this particular lineage. So, um, one of the things that I said in my Poulet piece. Is that colonialism had a much bigger impact on dog genetics than it did on European genetics, or mm-hmm. uh, d- did on human genetics?
0: Yeah. So basically, all of the dogs we see around us today are basically from that one European f- tree, you know, a uh, family line, right? Um, yeah.
1: There are some exceptions. There are some exceptions, particularly in China. Um, oh. They have like a lot of like. You know, like the Pekinese, like these sorts. Of, these these have deeply like, the Chinese dogs are mutts that are mixed between European, some weird step dogs, um, and uh, the native like New Guinea singing dog lineage. But um, in Africa, um, in the New World, um, in much of Asia, I mean, Africa and the New World, it's like all European now, except for a few lineages like Basenji and the Alaskan mam- Malamutes and stuff.
0: And so the the dingo, the Australian dingo, the the the, yes. the, the real dingo. What is its lineage?
1: Its lineage is um, New New Guinea, uh, New Guinea singing dog. So these are ancient Southeast Asian dogs, and um, I don't know. I mean, I think we. I mean, we we. I mean, just for the listeners, we uh, probably two thirds of our direct messages are related to dogs, Um, because I know that you're interested Mm. in dogs, and I have some dog knowledge, and so I just pass it on. (laughs) Um, And so I do keep track of the the dingo. um, I mean. We, I, I would say we are politically aligned, but that's like a separate issue, you know? Right. Um, but uh, but um, yeah, so the dingo is, uh, it didn't come with the Australian Aboriginals who arrived like 45,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. The dingo probably arrived like three to 5,000 years ago from Southeast Asia. Um, so it's probably associated with the spread of rice farmers from Southern China into Southeast Asia. So there is, a, the, the story I like to tell about the dingo is there's a legend in Northern Aboriginal people in Northern territory where they talk about the arrival of the dingo, uh, the dingo spirit, whatever. And they talk about the dog in a boat running back and forth. Like they specifically (laughs) remember the dog running back and forth in a long, narrow boat. So it was obviously brought to Northern Australia by Southeast Asians. Now they never, you know, people do not like to settle where there are other people. So they didn't leave, Southeast Asians themselves didn't leave much of a genetic impact. But um, they brought their dogs. And these dogs, I mean, the the Australian Aboriginals are hunter-gatherers. And they didn't hunt megafauna because they... They'd kill them all in Australia, okay? And so there wasn't much cooperative hunting, so the dogs just did their own thing. They spread across the continent, and you know a lot of like the 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 Tasmanian the Tasmanian wolf, um, or is it the Tasmanian? Yeah, so Tasmanian wolf that was present in Tasmania. It used to be present on the Australian mainland as late as like say two thousand years ago. Probably
0: the dingo outcompeted it. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, so, the no, dingo's where, pretty where, interesting. So where do you come down and, you know, I'm not afraid of the truth, but so just be gentle. Where do you come down on the genetics of the Carolina dog?
1: I, I, I Well, I mean, from what I've seen and I've tracked it, um, there is legit ancient. Um, let's just say that they are as Native American as Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> which is like they do have Native American ancestry. It's not it's not just all, you know, because I actually I'm friends with the guy that did Elizabeth Warren's genetics, by uh-huh. the way. And so I actually talked to him the week after it all broke Uh and we, and I've actually looked at the data, the raw data. She does have way more native American ancestry than you would expect from just a random white American. Uh Okay. And so the Carolina dog, um, Carolina dog clearly is not a 100%. Um, you know, there's, there's some serious Carolina princess ancestry there, you know, Um, so when I say they're mostly replaced, like, so say the Chihuahua is, is only 4% Mm -hmm. um, American dog, but, um, what 4% is it? So one of the things that we've kind of been alluding to in the background, but I don't think we've explicitly said it is, yeah, there's the lineage, there's the ancestry, but humans, they can select and do all sorts of weird things with the underlying basis of dog genetics. So Chihuahuas existed before the arrival of Europeans, because the Spaniards described them but i mean why are they genetically totally different today and yet they look the same well because the 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 genetic markers the the genes that influence size are much smaller than your total genome than your total ancestry and particularly in dogs actually it's a way smaller number than in humans there are some huge modifiers and so you can predict dog size from genetics much better than you can human human hmm. size and so um these these physical characteristics these phenotypes as you said Um, are a much smaller subset of the genome, and they can be tuned through breeding much more easily than, say, the whole genome. So the whole genome is replaced. So most of their ancestry is totally different, but um, their external characteristics are selected uh, for various reasons. Um, And so they look the same as they did before. That's one of the paradoxes where when the original genetics came back on these New World dogs, the hairless Mexican, you know, all of these, like, indigenous dogs it turned out they were just like European dogs and people were like, what's going on here? Your genetics is wrong, like blah, blah, blah. And it just turns out, well, actually, if you keep selecting for the same characteristic, it doesn't matter if they're re- mixing together because you're going to select for the pups that resemble right. one of the parents. And so you do that enough and the physical characteristics remain the same despite the overall gene turnover.
0: Right, although, I mean, in in, in fairness to the lore of the Carolina dog, they weren't bred, right? Which is one yeah, of the yeah. reasons why you get... Yes, some real diversity in appearance because yes. they're not bred for appearance, but they are bred by in the sense that they are there's natural selection in nature that you know. Yes. I have no doubt. I mean, look, there's there's street dogs. They're, they're white trash street dogs. So you're going to have inter- Wait, interbreeding can, from neighborhood. Can you dogs. say that? Can <laughs> like, you say I that. You know, like I, 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 my 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 American dingo okay. is is. Uh, is basically Daryl from The Walking Dead. And and, um, so you're going to have like lots of area dogs crossbreeding, right? Just because there are a lot of loose dogs in the South, particularly a hundred years ago, 500 years ago. So that's going to happen. And so I have no doubt that there's lots of other dog DNA in them, but the thing that is sort of remarkable about the Carolina dogs is that when they were first, these populations were first found in, or, or identified genetically in South Georgia and parts of South Carolina, um, They there were some unique characteristics to them that did get somehow selected. Like there's this weird vocalization that they do. They bury their poop in ways that I've never seen other dogs reliably do. They build, sna- they dig snout holes. There mm-hmm. are all sorts of w- little weird things about them that are... Are selected for. That are selected for somehow, yeah. right? Or at least... Yeah, they are. And I, yeah. I think that's, that's, that's interesting to me. But so yeah. I want to get back to this thing because... Um, so in the New York Times write-up of this big science study, which is something you alluded to before, it says... Um, so yeah, dogs are a continuation of a wolf line. But since those wolves became dogs more than 15,000 years ago, no new wolf DNA has entered dog genomes. This puzzles researchers because humans crossbreed dogs and wolves, as you suggested before. But none of the wolf DNA survived in dogs at large. Modern wolves, however, do show the incorporation of some dog DNA. Now, this I stipulate up front is a question from my ignorance about genetics. But every time I read a story about the science of genetics and I, you know, the, or ancestry.com and all these kinds of things, or I read some of your stuff about these things and people can trace back 26% of my DNA to Earthak the Great in outer Mongolia, right? Who conquered some village on a Tuesday. How is it that you could have um, wolf DNA vanish from the genome, I thought the whole point of all this genetic stuff was that it doesn't actually. This stuff doesn't vanish. It's it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's almost like I'm one of these big advertising companies, and the the wolves who are entering the genome are using ExpressVPN. Every day, I read another story about how our personal privacy is being invaded. It's not just social media sites watching your every move. It's your smart speaker, your smart TV, everything. Look, your data is your property. If companies that pay next to nothing in taxes are going to track what you do online and sell off your information, you should be compensated for it. And since you're not, then do the next best thing. Protect yourself with the same service that I trust and use to keep my information safe. Express VPN. encrypts your internet data and hides your IP address so websites, hackers, and even your internet service provider can't track you. It's simple to download the ExpressVPN app onto any of your devices. And it only takes one click to turn on. That's it. Wired, CNET, and The Verge rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN on the market. And it is, seriously. It's less than seven bucks a month. And if you don't like it for any reason, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So protect your online privacy today with ExpressVPN. And because you're a valued Remnant listener, you can get the first three months of ExpressVPN protection for free when you visit expressvpn.com slash remnant. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash remnant for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash remnant to learn more. So anyway, back to my question. What, how, how does stuff in the genome disappear? I thought the whole point of doing this stuff mm-hmm. was to find the stuff that actually doesn't disappear.
1: Yeah, I mean, so how does it disappear? So in population genetics, you know, which population genetics um, is basically the study of the change of genetic frequencies over time. Um, that's just, that's how we define it. And that is like, I think it's a simple way to understand it. One thing you have to understand is when populations mix together, if they are very, very different, um, it can happen that natural selection, that selection within the genome, actually, we call it purging um, or purifying, Uh, it can actually remove the genes of a very distinct population that's a minority contribution. So um, with Neanderthals, all Eurasians, all non-Africans have Neanderthal ancestry, but we probably have considerably less Neanderthal ancestry today. Than we did fifty thousand years ago when the admixture occurred, because mm-hmm. Neanderthal ancestry is not totally compatible with um, modern human genetics. Um, there is some, you know, there's some negative effects of having the two together, and so natural selection slowly purifies and and removes all of those negative elements. And so one thing that it could be is that wolves and dogs are, you know, yes, they can interbreed and have. You know dire wolf looking offspring, mm-hmm. but um, you know you're talking about the Carolina dog. There's selection for particular characteristics, and it could be that, um, for example,
0: um, I we haven't talked about this, but I think it needs to be said: wolves are smarter than dogs. Now, it's I just saw true. that you said that, and you linked to something, and I I want to I want to revisit that. I want to visit this. So all right, make your make your case for this vile slander.
1: No, I mean. Dogs have social intelligence. <laughs> wolves, wolves are better at a a, a a pen and snout paper test. I don't know. They have they have like better ability to like you know do visual spatial analysis and um just like you know track things. Dogs rely on humans for a lot of things. Um, dogs, uh, they don't bury their poop as you said. They're really sloppy. It's like they assume that humans will pick up after them. Mm-hmm. Um, wolves are more fastidious. So basically, they are dogs offloaded some of what wolves have to do to humans. They've been together with humans that long. So, um, for example, I know for a fact that dogs do less less. Um, they pay attention to their pups less, okay, mm-hmm. than wolves. Like wolves create like you know burrows and all these other things. Dogs don't do as much of that. Um, Dingoes don't do as much of that. So they're kind of a little slovenly compared to wolves. So. You know they have changed in particular ways compared to wolves and if you can imagine that if you have an f one as we call it like a first generation wolf dog um, they are known to be different uh, there's a reason they're illegal in a lot of states um they don't they don't you know. They're not as house-trained as dogs. Yeah. I mean, even dogs have problems, as you guys, as everyone knows, but wolf dogs have serious problems. And you can imagine a situation where they can crossbreed fine and they produce these fearsome looking creatures, but um they're they're a handful. And yeah. so you're always, I mean, you're doing I mean, you know, breeding can be a rough business. So um you look you see the the half-breeds, the half the F1s. Uh, these mutts growing up and you pick the ones that are more docile, that are more dog-like and you do that every generation, those dog-like ones might have like fewer of the wolf genes, right? Uh, Just in terms of the way the admixture is working. And so there's selection against that. There's selection of Neanderthal ancestry against Neanderthal ancestry in our genome too. So you can think of these as like dogs, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of genetic distance, it's not that far off. Um, If it's like, you know, 20,000 years ago and, you know, dog generations are like a fourth as long or whatever, now it starts to get pretty deep into the past.
0: But so but if you were studying an F1, half wolf, wolf dog, yes. whatever, you would find all the wolf DNA still in it, right? There's Yes,
1: nothing... F1 is 50-50, and yeah. F1 is 50-50. But then when you cross F1s together, um, there's variation. There are some individuals that are going to be more dog and some individuals that are going to be more wolf. Or if you do a back cross, which is like a three-fourths, you know, these sorts of things. So basically, um, genetics is a sampling process. And, you know, there's like... So, for example, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, I have siblings where they're 40% genetically identical to each other, even though the expectation is 50%. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because there's variance. Like, I think all the listeners know of, of siblings that are very different and siblings that are very similar. And some of that we know now from genetics is due to the fact that actually some siblings are genetically more similar and some siblings are genetically more different. And so this random process of variation... Means that even in the admixture, there's going to be selection, and you could imagine this being selected out now the other other explanation, which is a more boring explanation, is there's just like you know five hundred times more dogs, and so the tiny, tiny amount of wolf admixture is just getting like is not detectable in the statistical power of their paper. I will say um, for a fact though that a lot of people in the genetics community are skeptical of that particular result mm-hmm. from this paper
0: I, so again, uh, asking from ignorance or even worse, uh, being quarter educated on some of this stuff. Can you just, because I don't know when we're going to be doing genetics again. Um, i I run into people every now and then who say sort of, and I, I think my record on loving dogs is pretty solid, um, but who will say, oh, you have to understand, you know, we share X amount of DNA with dogs. And other people, you hear it more often. Like ninety-eight percent of our DNA is the same as in a chimpanzee or something like that. And I always like to say to these people, I'm pretty sure that we share like fifty percent of our DNA with bananas. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Can you just sort of explain what? Because like you keep talking about fifty, you know, fifty percent wolf, fifty percent dog. Yes, that's the. There's a one percent in there that is, that could be more important in any many specific yes. ways than the ninety-nine percent, right? So can you just explain how that kind of stuff works? No, you're asking asking a good question. Um, So
1: I will preface this by saying that um, I know many population genomics people who actually do not like the we are 98% like the chimpanzee because Uh even they don't really understand what people are trying to say by that. Yeah. so first of all, it's kind of like starting at a premise that's like muddled and
0: confused, even from the scientific perspective. But I'll try to say where it's that's,
1: coming from, I think. That's and what like, I
0: always thought. I mean, it just yeah. clearly, if we're 90% the same as chimpanzees, then there's 2% that's really freaking important. Yes, and so exactly. talking about like just raw percentage of similarity between, of DNA yeah. is, has to be a somewhat meaningless yeah. thing to say.
1: Well, let me, let, me, let me back up for like, you know, give like a minute or two for your listener of like what's going on. Because like we don't have, we haven't, we, we didn't have like whole genome sequences until the last 20, 10 to 20 years, okay? Mm-hmm. So we didn't know all of these details in the 1990s when, you know, we started first hearing this 99%. So what it is, is every human genome is 3 billion base pairs, right? It's 3 billion letters, the string, the A, C, G, and T. Um, but the vast majority of that, 98%, doesn't actually translate into protein. So we say that's not even genetic. It's not genic, okay? It's intergenic. So, okay, like now we focus on that 2% that actually creates genes, right? So it's 2% of 3 billion. Well, out of that, a lot of it is not different between human beings at all. If it's different, you have a disease or you're a carrier of a disease. And so of the 3 billion, only a tiny proportion of it Um, Is really useful or um, variable across populations or within the human species. So, for example, um, the 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 ancestry, 23andMe, all these companies, um, they use to calculate your ancestry. um, To calculate that your ancestry, they really use about like 250,000 markers. Okay, so you start with three billion positions and then they end up using 250,000 markers. And these are evenly distributed across the genome, and they vary across humans. Um, There's like 100 million markers, um, depending on how you count it, that vary within the human population, okay, out of 3 billion. So it's a really, really, really tiny proportion that's variable anyway, but um, it's That's what matters. That's what's actually telling you about your ancestry, your heritage, your pedigree. Because genetics is, to a great extent, the study of variation. So that's what we care about. We don't care about the stuff that doesn't vary. In terms of how you can estimate, oh, this is 50% wolf, 50% dog, well, what that's doing, it's looking at the small subset of the genome that varies and extracting from that the information of the pedigrees. Because genetics is actually just summarizing. Processes that are out there that are just hard to break down to regular humans. So, okay, you have say twenty thousand genes. That means there's twenty thousand genetic genealogies. How do we summarize that? How do we summarize the demographic processes that give rise to you in in a human digestible way? I think it's reasonable to explain. Well, this is from the wolf lineage, and this is from the dog lineage. All right, like like it, it's like so you know a table. A table is created out of atoms. And atoms are, are, you know, three quarks and leptons. Like we don't talk about three quarks and leptons. We talk about tables. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in genetics, we're talking about populations. Partly because, well, do we really want to give you twenty thousand genetic genealogies and say this is who you are? Like that's not going to mean anything to you. It will mean something to you if you're saying, well, you're twelve point five percent sub-Saharan African and you're eighty-seven, you know, point five percent Northern European. That's telling you something that's real. And it's telling you something that you can understand. Now, is that the fundamental truth of like what's going on in the genome? Well, I mean, that's the not even wrong question, because what's going on in the genome is you know, all these genetic genealogies are recombining through Mendel's laws. That's what's really happening. But that's not going to be comprehensible to anybody. So we, we think that this genetic history stuff is comprehensible, and so that's what we give people. Right. But, um, you have the raw data, you can figure it's out also what people want to
0: buy. Right. I mean, <laughs> you're giving it to them. That, that, not that is you. the narrative
1: that, yeah, yeah, that is the narrative that they want and we give it to them. Now it's not a false narrative.
0: Um, it's just, right. you know, well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get too far afield from, from dogs, but, um, I, I think the ancestry.com stuff is interesting. I think the 23 me stuff is interesting. And I think you know, for people who are looking for specific things you know about their genetic makeup, that's all fine i hate hate the identity politics plays of the way that some of this stuff is advertised sure. the The guy the example I have often used there's a commercial where this guy um I may be getting the ethnicities wrong, but it doesn't really matter. always thought he was Irish right or Scottish or something, and you know um and Then, and it was a big part of his upbringing. It was a big part of his family lore. And then he finds out that he's actually genetically German and he switches to like wearing litterhosen and all this kind of stuff. The idea that your genetic identity is more important and more real than the culture you grew up in, the family connections and institutions that you're associated with. I think is a really pernicious and dangerous way to think about things. If yeah. you grew up in an Irish community and it turns out that you were adopted and you didn't know it, the idea that somehow you should reject Irish culture entirely, even though it's the thing that connected you with your parents and your cuisine and your the history, you're like, never mind that you weren't adopted. but twenty five frickin generations ago, some Viking washed ashore in the wrong place. And you know, it, it, that stuff really disturbs mm-hmm. me the way it's become sort of commodified as a way of understanding what your real identity is. Sort of like with the the Elizabeth Warren stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm, can, I, I can say a couple of things to this one. Um, I know people that work at those companies. Um, I have worked at those sorts of companies before, and this is a conflict between science and marketing and uh, mm-hmm. marketing wins okay yeah. um i can tell you that like the it, the scientists are tearing their hair out when they see stuff like that because it even runs ahead of the science in terms of what we can infer about ancestry um and it's 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 maddening um every scientist i know who's worked at those companies or works there um they will tell you privately that they just like it, they don't want that out there it it kind of it kind of affects their reputation as well because yeah. uh, academic scientists are also like super angry about it um often they end up having to retract or change these weird um commercials. But um so I mean, I'm gonna throw marketing under the bus, but that's my 100 percent of the time, it's always marketing has done something and um some executive somewhere overruled the scientists complaining about it and just pushed it out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um I think the second thing that I do like to say is like I'm I'm pretty closely in touch with a lot of people, in genetic genealogy. I've given presentations at those type of conferences. Um for most people it's actually not a negation it's an addition uh where you know you can never change who you are as like who you are raised is the core of who you are but sometimes it adds something different to some people to understand that there's something in their genealogy in their history that they don't know mm-hmm. so um i give you a concrete example um I, uh, a friend of mine who is uh she's um from West LA, from, uh, you know, I think Bel Air, she was raised on the Bel Air Estates. Um, you know, Southern California blonde is the way I would describe her. So, um, in, in the modern cultural discourse, um, I don't know if you'd call her an Ashley or whatever, there's some <laughs> term for someone like that. Right. Um, uh, and then, so she comes to me and she's like, Hey, my genetic test says I'm 9% sub-Saharan African. Like, is this wrong? And so she, I'm like, give me your data. And so I gave him the data and I'm like, no, that that it's totally right. Like you are not like if I like do the raw, like a very simple analysis, you're not with all the other white people. You're shifted. And she's like, OK, I don't know what's going on here. Um, and so she had her parents tested and her dad was 18 percent. And he didn't know what was going on. And anyway, they found out something about their family history that they didn't know. I'll just put that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't change who she was. She's still like, you know, a rich white girl from Southern California, but um, it did tell her about like how this family became the way it was, was a little different Mm -hmm, than they had assumed. Um, People had made some different decisions because everything was very, very clear after she talked to her great aunts
0: um,
1: about how this happened. So this is the sort of thing that often happens where you see that your past is more complicated than you thought. And so, I think we in this space, from a, just a selfish perspective, we think it should enlighten people and kind of extend your horizons. You know, um, sometimes there are like really surprising results. So, I have a friend, he's a geneticist himself. He found out he was 18th Jewish, which was like a total surprise to him. And uh, he's from an upper middle class family. I'll like preface that, um, educated. And so, he told his family, and this was not. Um, this was not taken well, <laughs> which totally shocked him, um because he thought it was kind of cool, but he didn't really care that much. yeah, but um, he was told to like take like keep it to himself, which like that changed his own view of his family, to be frank, yeah. <laughs> of some of his relatives. um so i I think like you know, I'm biased. I think more information is better, um, and uh I think we just have to deal with the world as it is now does it affect you i mean me myself like i don't really care about this sort of thing um for other people they really care about their ancestry a lot and um it matters to them like i will say like you know my 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 children my, so i was born in bangladesh raised in the united states and my children are are half like you know mostly northern european and half you know bengali and uh, uh when you're talking about culture versus genes yes they're half bengali but uh like they don't really have much of a connection to that. Like occasionally, like I'll show them like YouTubes and they'll ask me if I was born in a hut. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I totally get you, you know, like my, my children, like they don't, I mean, they have like, they know that that's part of their genetic ancestry, but they don't got no connection to that because like, that's not where they were raised. And I didn't teach them the language and, you know, I'm not religious and all of these other things were like much more important stuff that affects their day to day is from their culture. And, you know, um, Speaking like you know to the listeners here, one of the things that really frustrates me about modern like discussion is when they talk about multicultural and they really mean multiracial, right? And it's like, no, like multiracial, multicultural, mm-hmm. are totally different. You can be of like the same culture in different races. So, for example, my wife and I, um, you know, sometimes she gets mad when people say multicultural, like we're in a multi, we're in an intercultural marriage. She's like, no, we're the same culture. That's stupid. Like, I mean, do you not know? <laughs> People of different races that are like of your exact same culture, right? And so I, I personally like that's just a pet peeve of mine mm-hmm. because um, like it's not. A, I mean, what is an intercultural adoption? Like, what does that even mean? Like, how are you having an intercultural adoption with an infant? What culture does an infant have? Right. right. Anyway,
0: just no, talk, no. Talk, no talk, that's, talk. That's, like, I mean, like I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of these. You know, mostly because of my last book, I where I had to really think through a lot of this stuff but you know I'm one of the guys who thinks that one of the best working definitions of conservatism is simply the idea that human nature has no history. Now I know as a geneticist it actually probably does have history, yeah. but it's over a very long time horizon and sure. the the point I make by that is that you take a baby from one culture and if it's an infant and raise it in another culture it will be raised with that software from that culture. It does not sure. bring, you know, uh, a particular affinity for pickled herring with it. Um, And and certainly doesn't bring, you know, certain complicated philosophical and political notions about organizing humanity with it. It's a baby and it has the factory preset software. And maybe there's some interesting variation among different populations about the software. But for the most part, human nature is human nature and we're all built from the crooked timber of humanity. Okay, so um, I want to go back to dogs for a second. these tests that do dog breeds, right? That you get a mutt, you send in some saliva, you get it back saying, oh, you're you're 30% poodle, you're 20% this, you're 30% that. Maybe the science has wildly improved on all of this, but I've always been very skeptical about this yeah this stuff, at least the first generation of it, because I did it with with the late great Cosmo, the Wonder Dog, and um And I actually did it with two different companies and they had (laughs) had different results. And, um, uh, and this, there is this thing that I've noticed about mutt owners and I'm a big believer, both in humans and in dogs, in the concept of mongrel vigor. And I, 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 I'm pro mutt. Uh, but the mutt owners are determined and I have, you know, I fight this in myself, Mud owners are determined to say, oh, well, we know it's half lab, half German Shepherd, or we know it's this versus that. And they talk about like lab and German Shepherd as these abstract, concrete scientific categories that go back a gazillion years when they basically all go back with a few exceptions. So like Victorian era dog breeding, you know, (laughs) um, so how rel- What are, what are they looking for when they do these genetic tests mm-hmm. that claim to say, okay, your dog is part border collie or whatever?
1: So there's 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 two um there's there's two primary like dimensions to explore here. Um, one of the dimensions is the number of markers. So as I was saying, like you know the, the human ancestry test used two hundred fifty thousand markers. Um, That means that it's 250,000 variables, basically, is the way you can think about it per individual, right? Um, The problem with some of the early human tests and definitely the early dog tests, say like before 2015 and earlier, they didn't use enough markers to have a lot of power to detect a lot of the differentiation. And so there's a lot of noise and randomness. So the fewer markers you have, the more noise is important. And noise is just random, okay? So uh, the current, um, well, so the company that I work for, uh, Embark DNA, like they use hundreds of thousands of markers. Okay, so um, I can talk about that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't worked for them for, I don't know, it's been like three years now, but I'm sure they have more markers. I don't know. So they made a huge improvement. And I think some of the other competitors have matched them um, by basically going to the human standard of using 100,000 and more markers. And so that really improves stuff a lot. The other issue is how do you select the breeds? What is your breed panel? So as you said, most dog breeds in the United States go back to the 19th century, go back to the Victorian era. They have breed books. And so, um, no offense to a lot of dog owners, a lot of your, uh, you know, a lot of your dog breeds are like Daryl or Cletus or whatever you want to say. They have a very, Mm -hmm. very narrow, (laughs) constrained pedigree. And when you have a narrow, constrained pedigree, it's really easy to identify the breed. The issue, though, is some breeds have, one, multiple pedigrees. So you could have dogs um, from the same breed and they look the same be genetically totally different because you know somehow there's two different you know i I think there's some sometimes differences between europe and the united states where there are two different lineages so that can happen Mm -hmm. that can cause problems um the other so for example a Stratfordshire terrier is i guess it's a breed but like there's only like one small group of pedigreed stratford and i'm going off three years ago information partly so maybe this has changed um there's one small Stratfordshire Terrier breed group. Most Stratfordshire Terriers are actually just mutts that look like Stratfordshire Terriers, and so mm-hmm. when you do a genetic test on them, they look like what we call village dogs, like a combination of like all these different breeds. So, like, what's going on here? And then a minority are legit Stratfordshire bear, bear, uh, Terriers. So, part of it is like how we define a breed. Some breeds are very clear and distinct, okay, in a philosophical sense. Like they have a pedigree, and there's. Dogs outside of that pedigree are never defined as part of the breed by people on the outside
0: world. Right, like a breeds, Mastiff goes back a couple thousand years, right? They're one of those yes. foundation dogs that, because yes. the Romans used them to breed Rottweilers yes. and all these kinds of things, right? So that's, that's one, I get that. But so like, what are they, what are, you know, like, what are they specifically looking for? Because um, say a Chesapeake Bay Retriever and, uh, and uh, a Labrador Retriever. Yes. They're, they're similar. There are definitely some differences, yeah. but how yeah. many genes have been flipped one way or the other? And, and how do you know what those genes are? Well,
1: so what you have to do is like, what's your definition of what a lab or a Labrador retriever and a Chesapeake retriever are? Okay. So you get basically the, the way we were doing it, the way these companies try to do it now is to, is to collaborate with, you know, groups like the AKC, find some reference dogs like reference populations that's what you call them. you find reference populations that you know are validated this is your this is your true positive this is your positive control and then every other out sample so like the dogs you want to test are compared to those so as the sample sizes get bigger hopefully they'll get more and more precise and you capture all of the variation now what invariably happens is um you're going to have variation outside of your reference panel because your reference panel is smaller than all the dogs, right? Like it's just, it's a, it's a subsample. And so it's going to be like 97% because there's some noise, there's some variation outside of your reference panel um, that's occurring. And then some of these breeds are very, very, very genetically close. They're so close that um, you have problems with the statistical power to detect the differences And so you'll get like kind of weird, let me just say volatile results Mm -hmm. out of the uh, sampling algorithms. So, um, you know, I'm throwing out like these complicated words, just like, okay, like you're getting crazy results. Why are you getting crazy results? Well, it's partly because people want answers to questions sometimes that are hard from a scientific perspective. Like some of this is demand driven, right? Like people want to know um, all of these fine grain differences among the very, very recently Created breeds, mm. okay? that They just want that. Now we could do that. We can do that. We're on the edge of doing that. Sometimes we can do it. Sometimes we're on the edge. Sometimes we can't. Um, but these are demand-driven questions where the scientists are do- scientists are doing R and D directed to those questions. But it's not like the populations naturally break apart into these breeds. Like the vast majority of breeds are actually a subset of these European dogs that expanded two thousand years ago, and then with colonialism spread all over the world. So most of our effort and energy is devoted to that subsample right there and that's a, that's a demand driven
0: ask so um like i just I, I again the the amount i don't know about genetics is it's a lot um but i have a hard time just getting my head around the idea that you could so finely tune um these panels or these screens or whatever you call them so that you could tell that, ah, this is Basset hound DNA versus bloodhound DNA. Because Mm Basset hounds and bloodhounds are so unbelievably similar except for coat color and length of and and height of legs. Right. I mean, that's about the major differences between the two. And, um, and now maybe you can, maybe there's a specific genetic panel that says long legs versus short legs. Yeah, there are. Okay. All right. So maybe that's it. So you would see basically these two dogs look identical except for these two little markers that say long legs and coat color. And you say, okay, so it must not be a bloodhound. So let's move to Border Collies, who we both know, first of all, um, should humanity be wiped out by some terrible disease, they will take over the planet. Um, One of the things that, and I have a hard time, I have to say, I have a hard time believing that wolves are in fact smarter than Border Collies. But I take your point that, like, border collies so, are actually... no
1: so collies, I do have to say, they're, they're, there is variation among dog breeds. Collies are
0: really smart. Yeah, no, they're crazy smart, right? I mean, there's, there's that, there's that co- border collie in Germany that not only has a thousand-word vocabulary, but you can lay out, like, a hundred objects on the stage and put one new one that it doesn't know. And because it doesn't know it, when you say, bring me the toy hammer, it it knows that because that hammer isn't something it's seen before, that must be the answer. That's yeah. wicked smart. You know? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, you know? Look, a lot of dogs, like say lap dogs, they're not too, sh- they're not too bright,
0: okay? Yeah.
1: Um, right. They don't have to do much, but sit in the lap, okay? Um, working dogs, some of these working dogs, uh, like Border Collies, uh, they have to retain a lot more um, wolfy intelligence because they're out there doing things in the world, um, manipulating, uh, unpredictable situations, right? Um, so when I say like dogs are on the whole not as bright, it's because you know a lot of dogs are focused on doing very narrow tasks that are human oriented. Right. Uh, something like uh, a dog like a border collie, um, some of these you know mountain dogs that are you know sheep you know sheep dogs. Um, sheep dogs are very very smart. Okay, as right. far as dogs go. In terms of um, herding,
0: the the, the ones yeah. that herd. Well, also,
1: right? also they have to deal with wolves. Yeah. I mean, they can't they can't be
0: that much dumber than wolves. Right. you know they just can't so so um but so the thing that i find sort of fascinating and a little disturbing is like um so first of all, all right, so uh, let's start where I was going to start um uh years ago when i used to write more about dogs um which people surprised that i used to write more about dogs but uh you know there was a big controversy when they started accepting Border Collies into AKC, because the true passionate border, collar lov- border Collie lovers were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't wanna start breeding these very special dogs for appearance, because you'll breed out the thing that is actually important. Like, if you actually run a sheep farm, it's nice if your Border Collie is pretty and has the right symmetry of fur color and all that kind of stuff. What you really want is the Border Collie that can interpret your whistles and herd sheep. And if you create an incentive structure where you start breeding for the appearance rather than the behavior, you're going to ruin the breed. Um, uh, But the thing that like, without telling me too much terrible about drowning puppies, how is it that you can breed in dogs behaviors that I would think have to be taught, right? Like pointing. There's nothing in nature that tells a dog, hey, there goes dinner, let me point at it. You know, I mean, like they're supposed to chase it. How how does that mechanism work?
1: Yeah, so um, I don't, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist. Like I've been Uh told this and I've I've forgotten like the details. But uh, yeah, a lot of these behaviors, um, they are innate to a lot of mammals. um, And uh, I don't know the details, but so there's gonna be variation among puppies and there's gonna be variation among parents. And so the way that the way the breeding works is, you look at the breeding value of the parent. Like that's what that's what they say in genetics. You look at the breeding value of the parent, and then you select off that. And so you don't even have to um, drown puppies. Like mm-hmm. you just basically don't allow certain dogs to breed. Uh, you don't allow certain cattle to breed if they're like of a particular size, stuff like that. So I mean, you know, there's different ways to do it in agricultural genetics. Some of it is. Pretty gnarly, but some of it is less gnarly. So there could be positive selection, negative selection. Um, so you just like focus on what the parents are behaving like. And if it's a heritable trait, as we say, if it's inherited, um, there's variation in the population, that's going to change the values in the offspring. And you just keep doing that generation after generation. And it just shifts the value. So um, in terms of pointing, like honestly, like I can't tell you right now because. I've been told multiple times by neuroscientists, but I just don't find neuroscience super interesting. Um, how the neurons get pruned and all of these like so a lot of the things that happen, um, these learned behaviors, like from a non-neuroscience perspective, they seem super complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, they turn out to not to be computationally very intensive. And there's like all of these like innate modules that snap together in particular different combinatoric ways. And so that's the way it's been explained to me um, that it's actually like a pretty, um, it's way less computationally intensive if you don't have to learn it, like it's less kludgy. And so there are these ten, uh, these reflexes that you can put in there. Um, and you know, it, it's not just dogs. I mean, there's things in humans where you see particular mannerisms. I mean, think about it as a mannerism. Like, I mean, I'm sure you've seen inherited mannerisms in families. Like it's, there are yeah. inherited mannerisms in my families. And um, it's super weird to see, you know, my ch- children have mannerisms that I've seen in like, you know, relatives of mine. And so think of the pointing as a mannerism.
0: Now, that's interesting. That's a good point. I mean, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how every now and then you'll have a friend who's quirky and then you see his father <laughs> get a talk. You're like, oh, that's where that comes from. You know? Yeah. Um, well, and wolf, I'm sure some wolf, of it is cultural. A wolf would say pointing
1: them. is quirky. You know, a I'm wolf sorry? would be like, that's,
0: a wolf would say a lot of dog behavior is quirky. Right. Right. I mean, like it just, and also just the idea of, of rounding up your food, but not actually eating it is weird. I mean, it's like playing with your mashed potatoes on the plate rather than eating it. Let's just make all the sheep go into the pen, but not eat any of them um, is a weird thing. All right. Let's go back to that, the science paper just for a second. Um, uh, You know, what comes next you know we've we've this this thing is interesting. It turns out that that European hegemony means more for dogs than it does for humans um but you know what what are the next shoes to drop? what are they going to be looking for next
1: yeah so um these are you know they find these lineages, the phylogeny as we would say, the ancestry. the next thing that they want to focus on is okay, like what are the characteristics how do these characteristics come to be? when do they come to be and so one of the things um that, um, you know, dogs and humans are parallel in a lot of ways. Like, really quickly, um, there's a high-altitude adaptation in Tibetan Mastiffs that is also found in humans, at the same gene, called EPAS. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of parallelism between dogs and humans. Another thing is humans, um, you know, we eat a lot of carbohydrates, and so we have an enzyme called amylase um, that processes amylose sugars, carbohydrates. Dogs also have the same enzyme, and there's variation in dogs and humans, and there's been a lot of hypothesis and exploration of whether this variation is due to, like if you're an Inuit or an Eskimo, you don't eat too much carbohydrates. If you're Chinese, you eat a lot. And so is there variation correlated between what you eat and your genes? And this is just a big open question. It's been back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, What this paper found is it looks like ancient dogs had this variation already. So perhaps they were already highly omnivorous. Um, You know, there's things maybe we don't know about what ancient humans and dogs ate. So, I mean, how did dogs come to be the way they are in their particular characteristics and why? Um, that is genetically amenable, and I think that will be explored with ancient DNA with more samples, with better with better samples.
0: So um on these different five breeds, right? Or lines, lineages. Um uh the the dingo and the singing dog are the only ones that are mostly, and the, 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 you said also like the there's some Arctic yeah. lines. Is there any chance that we could sort of Jurassic Park, I mean, people are talking about bringing back Mastodons, people are talking about doing all these things. Is there any chance like in the future we could tease out in one way through cloning, through whatever, through breeding, um, those distinct breeds again? And would we just, I mean, like, because the, 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 the New Guinea singing dog has some pretty freaking unique behaviors and it makes it interesting and cool. Um, is it possible to sort of get more of those that would actually be authentic or would they just be sort of mm-hmm. like impersonations of those kinds of
1: things? No, I, 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 think, I, think, I think it's going to be more than authentic because we know um, there's a lot of things you can do with dog genetics. The dogs don't have human rights um, that you could never do with human genetics or maybe outside of north korea you could never do with human genetics so um i think um cloning um the use of cloning for recreational stuff say because i think it's going to be cloning genetic engineering uh, in agriculture are going to be big um, considerably bigger in the coming decade but you know cloning dogs cloning cats and then also modifying their characteristics i think will be a market opportunity um if any vcs are out there um uh, you know you know my contact information no but uh In any case, I I do think that there's going to be a a huge market driven by the scientific literature of what we discover um, that will recreate and reshape the dog genome with best of breed modern technologies. Um, And look, we've been doing this for 10, 20, 30,000 years. Um, It's not science fiction, it's what we've been doing, right? We're just going to accelerate it and do it with a little bit more precision.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of my great peas when people talk about like, non-genetically modified food and stuff. And it was like, point me to a non-genetically modified food that you eat right now. I mean, the there's that great I mentioned this in the recent podcast, but there's that great chart in Matt Ridley's book of what basically all the produce at the supermarket looked like when we found it in the wild. You know, we've been breeding, you know, cows do not exist in nature. Um, you know, most of the things that we eat don't look like what they existed in nature. Um, before we started modifying them and the same thing goes with dogs, but you can, you, so you do, you, you do think that you could actually restore in the same way that they're talking about bringing back mastodons or woolly mammoths, whatever you could actually tease out a pure Carillion dog or a pure, um, Levant dog and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some issues with the scale of the of the genetic engineering. I think that's a technical problem that'll be overcome. The issue with mastodons and a lot of these other, um, you know, Pleistocene Ice Age things is like, okay, like what are you gonna do? Like, how are you going to grow it in utero? Like, are elephants compatible? Elephants probably are with mastodons, but but we're not totally sure. Um, But with dogs, like we have. We have dogs that we can grow ancient dogs in. They're right, just right. modern dogs. Right. And so I think that, that embryological hurdle, uh, that developmental biological hurdle, is just not going to be a big issue. The main issue is like, okay, like how good is your genetic engineering? Are there going to be too many errors in it? I think by the end of this decade, there aren't going to be too many errors. I think um, like the genetic engineering technique CRISPR that I'm thinking about mm-hmm. did not exist in 2012.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So it just like was overnight. And there's been a lot of development uh, in CRISPR. And I think it's going to be really good by the end of the decade. A lot of the work is going to be in agricultural genetics so that they're going to get the error checking much better. And, you know, dog owners are not, um, they don't want to create Frankenstein dogs. Like they want a good product. So I think um, there's going to be definitely some wealthy people are going to be investing and driving. Um, you know, there's going to be the Tesla of dog, dog genetics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's going to be a high end Product initially, and then eventually it's going to go mass market. That's my prediction.
0: All right. Well, stay tuned, uh, Razib Khan. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, I hope this will be a safe harbor for people who uh, who wanted to sort of get away from politics for a little bit. And I, as you can tell, I'm deeply interested in this stuff. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was my pleasure, man. All right. So uh, Razib has left the uh, building, as it were, and. Um, I hope people found that interesting. I found it interesting. I like doing deep dives on this kind of stuff. And, and I, I think people know that I like dogs. Um, and uh, I know that Pippa did not come up in this because, you know, Pippa's genetics are pretty freaking obvious. Um, and she's not a complicated creature. Uh, She basically only has four, maybe five states of mind over the course of any given year. <laughs> and so uh I don't I just don't find the comp uh, the genetics of 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 English springer spaniels all that fascinating. Although I was talking, to, you know, I could have used Pippa as an example of behavior that's inherited, um, that's heritable, that really isn't found in the wild versions of canines or of wolves, right? Because like Pippa's grind is to scare birds out of bushes so humans can shoot them. Um, and if like your major evolutionary, uh, Darwinian niche is to scare your prey rather than catch and eat your prey, you're not going to hang around very long. So I guess I could have used that. It didn't occur to me at the time, but I know there are, there are team Pippa partisans out there that will resent. that I didn't bring up, um, the other part of my canine duo. um, Um, when talking so much about the, the, the Carolina dog. So I got that in there now. Um, again, go check out the what's next event.com page and, uh, tune in for the, um, all the programming that we're going to have. We will figure out how to dissect the election results and all of the rest. But I really enjoyed not talking about politics at all. And I even cringed a bit when Razib started bringing up Elizabeth Warren but I think we, we managed to veer away from that. Um, and uh, not that I mind talking about Elizabeth Warren under normal political circumstances, but I, I like this being a political free zone. And um, I'm looking forward to more sort of deep dives on specific subjects now that we are out of the pure punditry phase of, of things. And um, so if you have ideas for topics that you want us to talk about on here, uh, please send them in. And please keep up the you know the positive reviews on iTunes and you know Google Play Stitcher all of those places. Uh, it means a lot to us. It's 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 it 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 helps us in all sorts of ways. And it's just nice to know that people are taking the time to sort of um, say nice things about us. And also on Twitter, it's always great. And um, that's about all I got. So I'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.